Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and I'll shortly be welcoming John Callas to the World Wild Podcast. But just a few things to say as a, as a kind of preamble to that. So something, something that comes out of conversations, or hopefully comes out of conversations, is um, to kind of change, change your perspective. Um, so I think uh, there's, there's, a, there's a commitment that, that I've kind of made and am um, doing my best to stick to, which is never to be certain about anything, in, in a sense. I'll explain what I mean. So obviously we are certain about what we, um, what we think provisionally. You know, um, like people were certain that the Earth was flat, for example, and that. But then came evidence to the contrary, and, and people had to accept that their certainties were being challenged. And eventually, now there's a consensus that the Earth is round. That's without getting into this insane flat Earth thing that's emerged in the last few years. But um, that that aside, most of us are, um, are just accept that there's um, there's a new certainty, provisional certainty, which is that the Earth is is round or spherical. So one of the commitments that 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 kind of come off the back of that commitment is that conversations are not um, spaces in which to just have your your own certainties shored up and reinforced. Whilst you know birds of a feather, no doubt, do flock together, and most people on this who come on this podcast do have a share a certain amount of common ground. But I think it's almost more interesting to sort of look back through these conversations and see where um, there's a slight disagreement, especially when when I when I kind of assume that that. that we see things the same. So yeah, I just think it's worth flagging that up and, and um, encouraging you as you listen to, to, to sort of look out for that and that the, this is um, this is not intended to be the presentation of um, absolutely fixed perspectives that, that are 100% right and therefore need to be whole, wholly taken on board by other people. So whilst I hope that there's a certain amount of clarity uh, coming through with, with, with what's said week after week, uh, it, just to be clear, it's not my intention to in any way suggest that we've got it all figured out. So the, 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 uh, the, almost the more interesting thing is to, is to um, see the progression and the journey unfolding, as it were. So that, I, I said all that because um, I wanted to just point to something in, in this um, episode, the conversation with John, because I came to the conversation with a, with a fairly fixed view, um, which is slightly critical of the whole genre of teaching as an end in itself. Uh, and that view was basically that people need to teach what they deeply know themselves. Now, I, that in itself hasn't changed. Um, but I came with an assumption that when John Callis embarked on the journey of teaching wild food, um, it was because he was already deeply embedded in that with a personal um, practical knowledge. And it turns out that, that I was completely wrong about that. So you'll you'll see me having that view corrected in the course of the conversation. So I now find myself with a with a sort of reworked kind of deep respect for the idea of teaching as an end in itself, but with the qualification that John has in fact fulfilled the criteria that that, that I've been um, wishing to emphasize there, i.e. in the course of learning to become an, uh, an excellent educator, which he clearly is, he has gone to um, great lengths to become um, practically embedded in the thing that he's teaching um, in order to be able to teach it. And, and I think that's fantastic because one of my concerns is that the field of outdoor education is um, potentially giving rise to people teaching foraging where where they've they've just done a short course in it or something and and I actually do feel that it it needs to be something where people are practitioners you know and they may just 
do what John has done and and learn to be practitioners in preparation for the for the teaching work. But uh, um, I think we we do need to have people behaving like the village elders that we keep talking so much about. Um, and um, especially if they're teaching things like forest school, that that the um, the teachers need to be giving out of what they're living rather than something that they've just learned on a short course. So that brings me to introduce this week's guest, John Callis, who runs a thing called Wild Food Adventures in Portland, Oregon. And John is, as already alluded to, primarily a wild food educator, and um, and he does a really good job of that, which, which um, as you'll hear in more detail, has been very influential on me in, in the early days when I was really getting down to learning plants. Uh, John's material was was absolutely key on on that journey for me. And John runs a lot of courses out there, and he does some really interesting ones, but that are, that are perhaps a bit more focused um, than than some courses. They'll they'll take you to a specific place to learn a specific kind of thing. For example, he does one on the beach that's learning seaweeds and um, and shellfish, and he also does a, a focused one on salads, another one on weeds. So yeah, to anyone living in that that region that doesn't already know John, it'd be great for you to check it out. But uh, for anyone else, it's it's probably quite instructive to to go to his website and uh, check out some of the resources there. So yeah, we'll get right on now to that conversation with John. It's a real pleasure to welcome John Kalas to the Worldwide Podcast. Hi, John. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you. So I just wanted to say that uh, I, was, I was describing to a friend um, who it was I was going to be talking to today. Um, and the thing is, you were really influential um, in the formative stages of our whole setup over here with, with Forager and, and the book that I wrote. Because back then in, in England, we, we had a couple of foraging books floating around. But without meaning any disrespect um, to people that wrote them, they were not written by people who were engaged in wild food education. Oh, right. So wrote books and had a good research team and were great at conveying the whole inspiration of you can eat wild food and some of the history of it. But there was nobody writing about wild food in uh, in the UK. There was actually really a practitioner. Mm. So I had to search the internet to to because because my background was was basically mushrooms and berries, and I was just beginning to start engaging with plants. So my very first route in was was a guy called Carluccio, who's an Italian chef. So he mm. got me working with a few plants. You know, I was moving out from just being a mushroom and berry guy to being a leaf and herbs and all of this sort of thing. But after those basics that I learned from that book, I didn't really have anywhere else to go to, to have some real proper information about how to work with plants. So it was your wild food adventures that, uh, that basically opened the subject up. And I don't know if you remember, but I had to phone you and ask, mm -hmm. how, how do I buy your wild food adventures? So John does, John, I think, I think it's out of print now, isn't it? Oh, no, no. It's, uh, we're up to about 70,000 copies at this point. Amazing. So John used to put this bulletin out called Wild Food Adventures. It was really nicely done. Little sort of. Well, the, you're talking about the the newsletter. I used to do a newsletter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, they were in little little little. It was like a little magazine. Yeah. Um, about the same size as our local parish church monthly newsletter in in this country. They they kind of look like that. Um, but I had to phone John up and say, how can I, how can I subscribe to this? I'm in England, and John gave me his bank details. I had to go into my local branch. And do this bank transfer. It was all kind of. I guess we weren't having this this traffic of information internationally that we have now, where we can just email each other and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so John started sending me this. He sent me all the back copies, and then I got got it coming through every every uh, 
every whenever you put it out until two. I think it was two thousand a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was so formative for me because your um your approach to things of of wanting to uh you know so many people writing about wild food they just as long as they got something to say they'll say oh I managed to say something I've now mm-hmm. covered <laughs> it's almost like you just got to fill a blank page under the heading of nettles and now you've yeah. ticked the box whereas your approach was I'm actually trying to give what I felt and and I know you've 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 written extensively about this that you want to give people the tools to actually engage with these plants safely and effectively and in a way that that gives satisfaction so John I've done a lot of talking you're supposed to be here to talk <laughs> and I'm talking <laughs> well yeah so you know I think the the idea is that we're no longer in a society that knows plants. Yeah. You know, yeah. we are now in modern society. When you grow up, if you're a kid and you're taking classes, you don't even take botany classes anymore. No. You know, it just doesn't exist. When you get into college, you're talking about genetic engineering and all that kind of stuff, but not really botany anymore or cultural anthropology basically which is what you know where you learn about plants and so what i view my role is as sort of like an elder who Mm -hmm. is taking you out only you know it's with a book i'm taking you out into the field and i'm teaching you everything you need to know in order to use that plant i mean i'm talking about what the plant looks like from a seedling and as it's growing you know i give photographs in my book of all the stages of growth close-ups of edible parts at their prime you know and then simple basic recipes just so you can get started and not feel intimidated um the whole meaning of that was to be the elder Mm. you know if i couldn't be there in person how could i teach you all that you need to know which Mm -hmm. took us out of the uh, what I call, and probably what you experience too, is uh, the the idea of a plant catalog. Most wild food books, when I was growing up, were like clothing catalogs. You know, where you know you you had a picture and then you had a description. Usually, it was one page. That's all they did. One picture, usually at the plant when it was not even at its prime. You know, it was probably too old. It was in flower because of wildflower books and so you know so so the wild food books were just repeating what wildflower books were doing rather than actually showing you the plant and so um as an educator because i you know i'm an educator before i'm anything else can we go one step back yeah to what you actually do in your personal life because you are a practitioner first surely do you see what I mean? Before you even want to educate someone, you do actually eat wild food is the point I'm making. Well, yeah, but I mean, um, uh, I'm primarily a researcher and an educator. Yeah. I don't live off of wild foods. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that to me, uh, that kind of life, I would not get anything else done. You know, so one of the things that, um, uh, one of the ways to look at this is, Back when everybody was a forager. Yeah. You know, back way, 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 way back before industrialization, all that kind of stuff. Even when there was some farming, people foraged in communities. So you had whole tribes 
that would, you know, so let's say you had 100 people in a tribe, just theoretically, you know, 10 would be off uh, to one location where they knew a plant was in season. And they would set up a little mini factory and they would collect it and process it and then bring it back for storage, mostly storage. They're not just eating as they're going along. Another 10 people in the tribe would be somewhere else doing the same thing with a different plant. So the goal, goal was to find plants in great quantity, to gather in great quantity, to then store that food. And so that those people then could live all year long by foraging whatever was available at that moment in time, but also the other 12 months of the year pulling stuff out of storage that they were, you know, that they had gathered before. And that gave them a complete diet. Now, so if you imagine one person trying to do all of that, it's nuts. That's all you would be doing and your diet would be fairly simplistic because you know one person can only gather so many plants well I, i'm not sure if you're aware but um a, a friend of mine a former colleague fergus drennan did this incredible thing that he actually did live entirely off wild food yeah. for three months sure. but it, it was always it's always the um the, the thought that i had about that 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 what what he was trying to do and very heroically did achieve uh, for three months was something that no one in the history of the universe has ever attempted to do because he was doing it on his own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, Sam Thayer tried the same thing. You know, he, he, he only did it, was, it for a month. But that was he and his wife. At least there was two of them. Yeah. 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 Well, but the other thing is we have all the modern conveniences today. You know, we've got a place we can wash and clean things and we've got food processors and I don't know, you know, how, what facilities he had available to himself. So that accelerates things a little bit, but that's all you end up doing. You know, that if you really want a diverse diet and a lot of uh, different kinds of plants, you got to drive to different locations to find these plants. You can, it's not all in your local neighborhood. Yeah. And so, you know, my goal is not to live off of wild foods. My goal is to get people back to, if they want, the ability to be able to do what our ancestors did mm. in a way that adds to their everyday life. So I supplement my diet all the time with wild foods. Mm. You know, so I've got wild foods. I, I, I promote them around my own yard so I can gather them easily. Um, and when I do research, I'm gathering a lot of particular plants to do the research, but I'm also eating them while I'm doing the research. Mm. But I'm not trying to live off of wild foods. I supplement my diet with wild foods. And that's what I actually, in my uh, volume one of my book series, that's what I promote is the idea that once you know enough wild foods, then you go after wild fast food. You know, what's convenient? What can I grab that isn't going to take me a lot of time because everybody's busy today? You know, who has time to do anything? So, you know, if you can find a food, grab it you know, throw it in with your salad and it's easy, you're going to do it. If you're going to have to process acorns every day and you've got a life, you're not going to do it. So, you know, wild fast food is the focus. How can you do it quickly, easily? And that's why I, I, I don't know if uh, it was clear from my book, but I'm covering universal plants. Those plants are found throughout Europe. 
They're found throughout uh, North America. They're found in Australia. I mean, they're found all over the globe, most of them. And that's because, you know, I want people to find these foods. And they're what I call plants native to humans. They follow us around everywhere. We disturb the soil, they grow. And so they're easy. They're right around us. You can grab them and you can add them to your diet. And so it's sort of an easy supplementing your diet with wild foods. I mean, I, I know you're keen to emphasize that, that, that your um, personal practice isn't something of 100% living off wild foods. I, it's great that you wanted to represent that accurately. But I would still say that your education is coming out of your personal practice. And, 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 I, and I think that's what's so important about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you do a lot of research, really test these things, you know, you figure out what's been uh, clearly edible from the literature and then you do experiments and you try every single way to work with them and you're creative about it, then it becomes easier to use them in your everyday life. Yeah, which I do. But I still go to the supermarket. I get normal foods. You know, I'm a normal human being. <laughs> and, and most people are. And that's the thing is that if I've got a student who's really interested in doing this, they really want to do wild foods, I recommend they do the same thing because they got a job, they got a life, they want to go out and dance or, you know, go to dinner or whatever, but they want to supplement their diet with wild foods. That's what I train them to do. So yeah. it's convenient. I'm really interested, though, in 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 seeing the the, the possible kind of link between the very kind of practical and realistic approach you're taking, which is basically saying we've got to start from where we are with, yeah. with busy lives, that we're probably going out there on our own with a, with a basket or whatever to gather a few bits to take back to our own personal kitchen. Yeah. But that you're contrasting with where we came from, which is where as, as a collective, we would be working very intensively together in order to feed the whole tribe and so on. Sure. I wonder where, where the two eventually could begin to meet in the middle because what what I'm fascinated by, um, having done wild food walks and and foraging education for quite some time now, um, I'm beginning to wonder whether finding a way to do that kind of education in a particular place with the same people more intensively. So I'm thinking of starting something up in the village where I am, where the same people year after year after year come together and, and we actually start doing it together and then we start seeing that it's actually it's it's actually doing other stuff it isn't just affecting our diet it's actually yeah. affecting the community cohesion it's affecting sure. the relationship of the people in that place to the land um but all of this uh, all of this research is as as, as you're uh, alluding to here um where we're, where we're we're rediscovering what to what to do with the plants um plus you know, no doubt you, you and I both, a certain amount of what, what we understand about the plants is coming from the ethnobotanical literature or direct contact with uh, indigenous cultures that have never lost their, their practices. You know, but, but um, I forgot what I was going to say now. Well, I, it sounds like you're working up to this thing about uh, developing community around wild food. And, and that would sort of be nice. The, uh, I have hesitated to do that. And the reason that I've hesitated to do that is, number one, I've got a million things I'm working on, and it's hard to develop a community where you're that invested. But the other thing is that I've found in the past, whenever I've gotten groups together, that I end up being 
the constant teacher. Like I'm constantly teaching people about everything. And so then the dynamics is not of equals. It's more like, well, here's the the guy who knows. So we're all going to come to you and we're going to treat you differently because you're the guy who knows. And we're going to keep learning off you and stuff like that. Well, you know, this is my full-time job. This is all I do. I don't have a part-time something else. I don't have a full-time something else. I'm strictly a researcher, educator. And so there's only so much time in life. And this is how I make my living is by educating. And so the other problem with doing that, you know, having building a community around this where I would end up doing the teaching, I'd end up doing it for free because it's my community. And so I'd be giving away all my knowledge and not getting anything back for it. And then I'd have to get a job because I'm not making any money. That's tricky. Yeah. So in order to to really do this full time, it's got to be a commodity that's valued and that I get some reimbursement for. And it would be a terrible community if they were paying me to be a community member. You know, it it just would be absurd. So... You okay. see the conundrum there. Yeah, no, I do. But at the same time, uh, I've got to go round to my local GP, doctor surgery uh, when, when I get off the, this Skype conversation because I've got something stuck in my foot that I need to get out. Now, that guy is being paid to be a medical practitioner in this community. So that's what I'm working on. I'm, I'm looking at how could we get funding sources that, that, yeah. that, that, that pay me to be that, that guy that's available to everybody. So, yeah, that's the way we're going at it, John. Yeah, not to... Not to do, I can totally see what you're saying. Nobody that's a plumber is going to just say, hey, guys, I'll fix your pipes. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, there's barter communities. Yeah. But that those are small, uh, you know, if the whole society was a barter community, that would be a different story. Yeah. But if you're yeah. trying to create a small little community with members who come in and out and some people are flaky and some people are devoted and some people just want to, you know, leech off of everybody else. You know, it's very, very hard to get something that really works beautifully. People, I don't know if you have co-housing communities in your neck of the world, but. Well, like housing, there's housing co-ops. There's, there's, there's not one particularly near to where I am. Yeah, so, so basically, you know, we're, you've got, uh, several houses and they're all connected and usually they have a little community center and so people get into this system and those rarely work out because people all have different ideas about what they want to do and you know we're the problem is we're an enlightened society which is great but it brings in the problem of well now we've got all these options now we've got all these choices back in the uh, early cultures those cultures were very very tight they had mores and, and they did certain things and everybody was expected to do their certain role. And so there were a lot of forces that were keeping those communities together. In today's society, there are no forces keeping communities together. They can run off and do whatever they want. Whereas, you know, free will, we've got mobility, we can decide, well, I don't like this group and I'm moving or whatever. In the old tribes, you were in the tribe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so it's different. I, I do wonder whether the old cultures don't don't point the way back in, though. I mean, when, when you look at, I guess, for me, I keep coming back to this word satisfaction, John. So much of what modern life offers in terms of, you know, the choices and the freedoms and so on, um, in the end, it, it, it doesn't actually lead to people feeling 
grounded and, and satisfied. And I think um, okay. more and more we're, we're, people are asking the question, well, what would, though? And I, th I don't think we're far off um, a, a situation in which people would be prepared to make the kind of commitments which, which wouldn't have been possible 10, 15, 20 years ago. The people are realizing, okay, it's, it's real food that comes from the land that makes my body feel satisfied when I eat. And it's real relationships which involve, you know, long-going commitment, long-standing commitment, ongoing commitment um, that uh, are not just fly-by-night. You know, if it doesn't go my own way, I'm leaving. Or if there's a bit of conflict, I'm leaving. You know, the, the people from the outset would start buying into a situation and say, okay, this, this, the, the, the good stuff is only going to come when we, when we work this and work this and work this and work this. So, in other words... I would say that's 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 um, crucial thing there is that there's a thing called wisdom moving back into the into the the centre of things. Whereas this this quick fix, I'll get what I want, I'll do what I like, da 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 da. da. Which you know, like in the sixties, the hippie thing was there was a lot of that. You know, I'm going to do it because I feel like it, because it's real to me, and all this kind of thing. But at the same time, people were hanging around with they were they were flirting with with philosophies that had profound depth and wisdom in them. Mm -hmm. I think it's just that they just took the kind of pick and mix values out of it uh, without seeing that. The, 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 but now I think we're coming around to the thing of saying, you know, wisdom involves, um, you know, it's blood and guts. It means we, we have to really give ourselves and, and, and we have to uh, take our time to, to, before we get something out of this. We can't just expect to, to understand wild foods just because we read a book or we went on one of John's courses. I don't know. I'm very hopeful that there's so many things that 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 it's uh, there's, there's a. I'm not going to quite quote it entirely, but uh, there's a there's a line from a punk song, a punk rock band uh, called The Clash. They said, mm. if, you know, if if you have sex with a nun, you might later join the church. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think we've been flirting with things which are the output of real wisdom traditions. For so long, I think sooner or later we're going to get accidentally get wise. But that, that's my long-winded way of saying I think that, that that we're in a time when we might actually succeed in uh, in growing community around this stuff. Well, you know when that'll happen, and that's when we're in the Star Trek economy. Okay, <laughs> you know, in Star Trek, because of robotization and computers and uh, uh, you know, dematerializers and materializers, there was no need. No one had to worry about any needs, food, clothing, shelter, all taken care of. And you didn't have, and there was no monetary system. So right. people just did what brought them fulfillment. That yeah. was the whole idea. You had no longer had the burden of money. And so um, when that happens, two things will be true. One is we won't worry about money anymore and people can develop these communities and just do things that are fulfilling like wild foods and getting back to nature and, and, and living off the land more and things like that. Um, but the other thing that would be true is that almost every bit of land by that time, the population will have covered and we won't have any habitat left. There'll be very little habitat. I mean, it's already happening now. Habitat loss is amazingly rapid and so we're losing it look at what's happening in the amazon right now they're you know they're trying to cultivate the whole amazon the new leader there 
It's like he's letting the place burn because he wants farms out there. Well, you know, all those indigenous cultures who are living off the land, they're losing their habitat. Here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, this is a very popular place to live. You know, a lot of the open fields where I used to forage are now houses. You know, so that's an issue. It's not just that, you know, we people can want to do something like this. You also have to have access and you also have to have enough land. I mean, it's easier in rural communities. If you're living in a rural community where there's lots and lots of land and not so many buildings, then there's a lot more access to wild foods. Um, I have plenty of access to wild foods in the city because people plant, you know, beech trees and uh, uh, walnut trees and things in the neighborhoods. And you can gather those, too. You can forage for those neighborhood foraging. But uh, but the actual real land that's available is being shrunk every day. And, you know, how many billions are on the earth now and how many billions more are we predicting in no time flat? You know, so th- these are things that concern me, which would make something like that a little bit more difficult. Not impossible, but yeah, difficult. I agree with you. But there's, uh, there's, a, there's another thing that's sort of swallowing the land up, though. Um, you know, on the one hand, we've got buildings, as you say, that mean yeah. there's wild food. But it, but industrial agriculture says there's there's no wild food, too, because there's spray yeah. every stench of it. Now, I think that's got uh, – that's got – that is not going to carry on indefinitely. Oh, yeah, I think we're, we're going to be mo- going more to uh, most farms are going to turn to hydroponics and things like that because, you know, climate change, we- erratic weather, droughts, things like that are going to make having a regular farm almost impossible. And so I think almost all of future farming is going to be hydroponics and, you know, doing stuff in greenhouses and stuff. Well, I'm quite hopeful that the, the agroforestry thing that's that's uh, gaining traction at the mm-hmm. moment is also going to have a, a big part to play, and that that will that will mean that it's not um, just the cultivated plants on those areas of land. You know, the hope that I have is that basically the the wild food thing will become mainstream because because mm-hmm. the economic arguments, the ecological arguments. The social arguments, all of the arguments will come together to say, well, actually, you know, if we were just considering one of those things, it would still make sense. You know, that when 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 the land is is yielding up plants for which there have been no added inputs, they're just like a byproduct of the fact that we're cultivating this other plant. Well, that's mm-hmm. makes sense. OK. And then when we consider the thing that in in the previous scenario, we were spending money on toxic chemicals. In order to get rid of that thing, we suddenly realise the thing we're trying to get rid of is an asset. Yeah. Okay, so now we've got two reasons, just 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 in terms of that piece of soil and that land. But then we start looking at the thing which 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 you make such a powerful case for in your work of the uh, the superior nutrition uh, of the uh, of the plants. Now we've got another reason. We'll keep them because actually, in many cases, they're more nutritious than the thing we're trying to grow. And then we look at the uh, the the social cohesion that can come when people can come in there and and gather mm-hmm. and prepare foods. We look at the, the, the evidence for the mental health uh, benefits of yeah. people in time in green spaces. And then we go to another level and say, okay, well, actually, when people are getting wild foods from their locality, they have a sense of actual kind of, they're like bonded to that place. So there's this yeah. sense of actually, I'm part of this, and that makes me feel whole, that makes me feel good. Oh, and all of a sudden, that makes me fight to protect it. So, you know, there's all of these different things working together 
I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that we will be actually able to make these cases, the case for this, not just to uh, sort of the kind of maverick sector of the population that comes on your courses and mine, John, but mm -hmm. we'll be making these, these cases to, to local councils and, and uh, healthcare professionals and governments and the World Health Organization. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know, perhaps I'm just too much of an enthusiast, but I'm aiming high with this, John. <laughs> I think we have to make the case globally that actually we made a mistake when we went so hard into this agriculture thing and that globally we could actually make it a, 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 a mainstay of human culture again that we nourish ourselves from the wild and all of the attendant benefits that I've just described there I mean you know perhaps I'm aiming too high but but uh, aim as high as you want <laughs> yeah I, I guess I'm I'm I, I'm uh very very practical guy yeah and and um and to me uh the future of wild foods is is edible weeds and the reason for that is or, or again plants native to humans i prefer that because we i don't like the term weeds but uh because there's nothing unsustainable about edible weeds i mean they're everywhere you can gather them to your heart's content you're not threatening any populations but again, because society is growing and we're losing land, there's fewer and fewer places left that are native habitats. And if on a massive scale, people went into these areas and were harvesting all the wild foods from these natural areas, that's not sustainable. It's just not going to, I mean, we're talking about billions and billions more people in the next 10 years. So... You know, I, I, to me, it's plants native to humans. Those are the ones that we should be going for. Um, those are the ones that, that fit better into that scenario of doing it on a regular basis and being more uh, both sustainable and an everyday activity. Well, I know what you're saying with that, but, but let, me, let me give a couple of examples of habitats um, and, 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 and go at it the other way and say, well, here's these habitats. What, happen, what would happen if we... Uh, rather than saying, okay, let's focus on the on the uh, plants natives to humans and, and leave these alone because it might be over um, harvested and, and too much pressure on the habitat. Okay, so we've got salt marsh in England, in, in the UK, and we've got uh, the the lower shore where all the seaweeds are. Yeah. In, in uh, around the British coastline, there's more biomass in terms of seaweed than there is in all of our woodland. And we've, we've still got a fair bit of woodland. Yeah. It's nothing to what it used to be 10,000 years ago, but uh, we've still got a fair bit. My concern is we're not eating it because that seaweed is produced every year and then it gets smashed off and, and, uh, and we have local councils clearing it off the beach so that it doesn't stink and, and put off the tourists and so on. I would like to see a situation where we're, we're eating a very significant percentage of that biomass. What, what's going to happen with, with that situation is that that same biomass is going to be not required from an industrial agricultural system. So we'll have gained whatever land we needed in order to produce that, that many tons of, of protein and, and, and vitamins. Now, if we reach that point where, where that becomes a, an integral part of our national diet, everybody's used to eating that much seaweed now, and we expect to have it, um, 
that's going to, again, give a reason why we, we're going to protect those seaweed habitats. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're going to be able to work on edging our way towards some of this sort of half cultivation, half, half wild, that we somehow extend the habitat by semi-artificial means. Well, of course, by doing that, we'll be extending the habitat of whatever lives with the seaweed. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to the salt marsh example, what we have in, in the UK, especially on the East Coast, where I grew up on the East Coast of, of England, where there's a lot of salt marsh. But in the past, a great deal of that salt marsh was drained and they put up sea walls and, and ran dikes through to, to right. turn that into uh, mainly to grazing land. But sometimes it was turned into uh, um, cultivated land. Um, but now we have a situation where the coastal erosion costs a great deal of money to to uh, to stop by, by building artificial sea defences. And the Environment Agency, who's the government body responsible for that here, are, are beginning to say, I think we're, we're going to let some of this just go back to the sea. When they say back to the sea, they mean back to the salt marsh. Right. Um, and my point would be, if we saw the economic and the health benefits value of all of those um, uh, wild edible plants there, that yeah. would be much easier decision to make because in, in the past, a few people might have got them, but somebody made a decision at some point, we'll make more money if we drain that and put sheep on it. But like if we're now letting that go back to the sea and we're, uh, and, and um, at least when it's high tide and we're able to forage all of those plants, again, that's a very, very substantial um, amount of food could come off there. Um, so I guess I'm I'm trying to think about it that way. What what if? Oh what yeah, if, yeah. That's a good that's a good example, but it's a very specific one. I think seaweeds have so much potential for a variety of things, including uh, certain seaweeds. If you feed them to cattle, they produce less methane. Yeah. So if we could you know ramp up that, but uh, again, that's industry harvesting the huge quantities of that and then giving it to you know cattle ranchers um but i also see seaweeds as one of the potential um uh not cures but uh, uh mediation of climate change absolutely because if if but this is on, on a massive industrial scale i'm talking about not just wild foods but i'm saying yeah. you know these guys absorb so much carbon dioxide and we've got the whole ocean to deal with. Uh, if if we can start all sorts of uh, trellises and things like that, where we're actually producing seaweed just to capture CO2, not even eating it. I mean, we could, you know, we could do ones that are edible too and, and bring that into the population. Uh, you can only eat so many seaweeds though, because they're, they're too high in minerals and you'd get digestive problems if you eat too much seaweed. But um, you know, add, you know, try and get it more into everybody's diet. Um, uh, but ma ma massively grown could help with climate change. You know, we we've got the, you know, uh, uh, the Amazon forest going up in flames now, you know, maybe that could be our next Amazon where it's taking a lot of the CO2 and creating more oxygen. So seaweeds have huge potential foraging. You know, if you're going to forage seaweeds, that means you have to have a boat or you're going out at low tides, you know, and you're going in certain areas that you know where it, grow, where it grows. So those are all activities that take time for people. And for people like me, I'm happy to do it. But I find that most of the times that I go now, because I've got so much in my refrigerator and my freezer and I've got so much dried, 
you know, every time I teach a class, I have another opportunity to harvest. And so I've got plenty. <laughs> but, you know, people actually have to be able to go out and do that. And, and again, how can they do that sustainably? So even though there may be an unlimited supply of seaweeds, on the way to walking out there at low tide, how many people can the habitat, you know, the tide, um, the tide pools, how much foot traffic can they survive and still support all the other life that's out there? Because that, to me, that one of the biggest problems with our tide pools uh, here in Oregon is that most people don't know how to walk on them. And right, they're right. killing all these species because there's no education about, you know, how do you move around within nature so that you're not killing everything on the way to the food that you're trying to get. So, and the same thing in the, in the woods, you know, when you're dealing with a forest, if you're on trail, you only have access to so many wild foods. As soon as you grow off trail, you're compacting the duff and making that habitat more conducive to weeds than you are to the native plants. The more compressed that soil gets from walking around on, the less conducive it is for native plants. And so, you know, again, the more people that do it, that's sort of where I'm at. When I teach my classes, I teach my classes in, in certain forests here, and I go down the same exact trail every year. So I've taught thousands of students along the same trail. Those plants are still there. Why are they still there? Because I'm also teaching about them about sustainability. And, you know, saying spread out, you know, go to different locations, try not to, you know, concentrate in one location. And so all the plants that I started with 25 years ago are still in those same woods and still along the trail. Yeah, it's 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 a complicated thing. You know, I have friends that think that humans are the scourge of the earth, you know, like we're we're destroying the planet. And, you know, the more we're out there, the more we're making things bad. So. So to me, yeah, sustainability is a huge thing, uh, uh, knowing how to be in nature. So all of that education has to be part of learning about wild foods, not just the plants, but where are you? What are you doing to the habitat that you're in? You know, if you're harvesting nettles all the time in one patch and you compact that soil, you're going to destroy the nettles. So, you know, it's not just the foods, it's how you, you know, move yourself around in nature. Yeah, I mean, I think everything you're saying there just is, is like a, an add-on to your original um, statement there, John, about your role being one of a, like a tribal elder, because, you know, obviously um, we need that. And again, it comes back to wisdom. It, it isn't just like a couple of isolated facts, which are enough to give somebody the equipment to go out there and do some harm. <laughs> right. So right. need isolated facts. We need it. We need a, a, a cohesive, um, you know, s system of, of practical knowledge, which has been built up by, by people that have worked in and with these um, e ecological contexts over a long period of time and found out what the pitfalls are. Um, yeah. One thing I would say though, is that when even a small amount of work of, is done in this area, I, a person learns a few plants and, and gets out there and starts picking. Um, they're already in a far better situation than they are with anything that they purchase. And what I mean by that is that they're going back to a, to, to a place um, over year after year. Um, 
once they've made that connection with plants that are growing in a particular place. So they will see before their very eyes the damage that they've done if they are doing something in an unsustainable way. And I think that's a really important point yeah. because, you know, when you buy something, you're completely cut off unless somebody's going to feed it back to you and tell you about the Amazon rainforest where the soil was grown to feed the cow that you think is an organic grass-fed fed cow, but like uh, it's actually been eating feed in the winter that came from some, you know, unless somebody yeah. does work to, to give you that feedback, you don't see it. And, and, and um, you know, and th the other thing I would say is that in, in the context of um, any local situation, especially where we start to get this community element in, I feel that we're moving back to a time when uh, those kind of mores that you were talking about uh, are, are going to develop, you know, yeah. that we see in, in our village, we have a really quite clear idea about what we do with this particular harvest because we've noticed in the past that when we did this, this happened, you know, right. we had to get together and talk about it and say, we've got a problem here. How are we going to make sure this doesn't happen? Or on the positive side, somebody's tinkered around and, and like we do with one of the allium species called crow garlic here. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we harvest the bulbils, which is one of the reproductive parts. Yeah. But we'll take, we'll, 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 we'll take three and scatter two. Yeah. So we'll break them up and throw them around. And, and I'm sure that we're enhancing the population with that. We've done the same with wild cabbage seed. So on the other hand, we have these mores to do with how to uh, enhance the, po the population. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then thirdly, just to look at the same thing in a slightly different way, what we're looking at, if people start doing stuff uh, collectively in, in, a, in, a, in, a, uh, in a given area or individually, but they realize that they're accountable to each other. You know, mm -hmm. I can't trash the wild blackberry population because it's going to annoy you. You'll say, where's the blackberries, Miles? You've been and so on. That we are then back to a situation of managing common resources. And I, th I, think, I think that's tremendous. But it, but it does mean, again, it has to have that social element that we sit down and thrash it out. And you could be yeah. really pissed off at me because I've done it this way and you think it should be done that way. But in this collective context, we thrash it out and eventually we say, no, okay, John's right and Miles is right. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, and, and then we start having this uh, culture around the common practice of how to, to, to work with these things. So, you know, I think we've got all these things ahead of us. You know? mm -hmm. um, obviously, climate change is right in the slap back in the middle of this. But, but for me... Uh, I feel that climate change is, is whilst it's, it's a terrible catastrophe that's unfolding before us, it is also uh, something that is forcing um, practical areas of, of uh, innovation, which mm -hmm. simply wouldn't have happened otherwise. Like what you're saying about the seaweed, I think that's just that's just amazing. Um, but but I would I would want to push that that human dietary factor in the seaweed possibility that you just aired there because. We've certainly got a long way to go before the whole global population has reached that threshold that you mentioned there of, of um, eating enough seaweed but not too much. So, you know, I think I think we could find we could find homes for that. But the other thing is, um, well, I'm finding what you've said so stimulating. I've, I've kind of got a lot to say in response to it. So, forest, John, in in the UK, we've got areas of of, uh, of highlands in Scotland which are actually the scars of deforestation in the past. You know, humans went up, cleared yeah. forests. And, and it's all gone to very acidic soil now and it's covered in heather and, uh, and, and, it's, and it's, it's beautiful, but it's not doing anything that's feeding into, uh, you know, it's not producing any resources for food or anything else. You know, we reforest that, all of a sudden, we've got a vast area that, that's, that's got mushrooms on it. 
So all of a sudden, you know, so this is this is the kind of thing that, that is also possible to, to recreate habitats, which are very productive for wild foods. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then we've, we've got people, mostly permaculture people, who are working on food forests here, you know, mm-hmm. where they're taking vacant land and they're creating, you know, a place where it does nothing but produce food. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's sort of similar idea to that. So, you know, seaweeds are great. Um, again, even if we don't eat them, they're great for mitigating the climate issue. Um, but, you know, integrating them in the diet, that's a, that's a whole nother story. And we've done it, you know, uh, around here. We've got a lot of Asian restaurants and, you know, and they do sushi and all that kind of stuff. So you have seaweeds in that. Um, I When I teach my seaweed classes, I call them sea vegetables. Um, I have my students uh, test them all fresh and recommend don't even dry them, you know, uh, unless you don't, you're going to store them for a while. But I say, just throw them in a salad, throw them in a sandwich, you know, throw them in your, your spaghetti, you know, just, you know, chop them up and, and mix them with stuff and just eat it that way. There's, you don't need a recipe, just throw them in everything. And so, uh, you know, to, to get rid of that intimidation factor, oh, there's seaweeds, what do I do with them? And I need a recipe and I got to do something, you know, and it's uh, people just end up not doing anything. But uh, but again, you know, uh, again, you don't want to overdo it. If you're eating way too much seaweed, then you're going to have start having digestive problems. It's just too many, too much mineral for you to manage. Mm. And so mm. you need a diverse diet that includes seaweed. But you don't just eat gobs and gobs and gobs of seaweed. Well, John, it would be fun to um, to hear kind of some of your story as to how you ended up doing what you do. Well, um, when I was growing up, um, I was always interested in outdoor skills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my motto w- was sort of like Native Americans. You know, as a kid, I was always in the woods you know, rubbing two sticks together to create fire, never succeeded, um, you know, making shelters, uh, making bows and arrows, you know, doing all those kinds of things that uh, Stone Age people would do uh, because it brought me closer to nature. And um, it wasn't until I got into uh, late high school and early college that I started realizing that Almost everything that um, Native peoples did was oriented around food. You know, what was the bow and arrow for? Gather food. What were the baskets for? Gather food. You know, it's like almost everything that they had, except for ceremonial things, uh, art, you know, everything was oriented around food. And so that's when I started focusing on that. And I'm not a hunter. Uh, but I do love the idea, always did love the idea of foraging. Now, I said earlier that, uh, you know, to me, my bottom line is I'm an educator. I'm like sort of like a born educator. That's that's part of my being, my essence. Um, and and so I was starting to take education classes after a, a short stint in, in uh, pre-med and um, and realized that, you know, I could as long as I was teaching, I would be happy. And wild foods was so exciting to me that I thought, why don't I teach that? Which means I also got to learn it, 
which, you know, now here I am with all this bad literature and bad sources of information, struggling and struggling for years and years and years. And so, but still, you know, persistent about it, even though the first time I tried Dandelions, I didn't know what I was doing and I hated them. You know, that didn't stop me. Could you say a bit more about the bad literature and the bad information? I think it's, it's, it's good for people to understand that background. Well, okay. So, uh, well, when I got started, there were almost no books on wild foods. It was all survival literature. Right. And survival right. literature is really bad on wild foods. They don't know at anything, you know, and they give you bad advice. And, you know, they got somebody in a survival situation and what are you leaching acorns in the survival situation? You got the enemy chasing you in the woods and you're going to leach acorns. You know, it's like it's total ignorance about what's possible. And, and some of the information was just dead wrong. A lot of it was just dead wrong. But there were a couple of old books on survival or on uh, wild foods specifically. I remember uh, Bradford Anger had some books. Uh, Alan Hall uh, had a wild food field guide. Um, you know, I don't know how you guys were uh, in Britain, but, uh, you know, here uh, there was very little. And it was before Yul Gibbons wrote his books. And so, you know, basically, even those early books were very, very simplistic. And they were like catalogs. You know, they just had one picture and a page with very brief information and not enough to really be practical, not enough to identify the plant, not enough to be sure about what to eat on it, and no, uh, not enough information to know how to prepare it properly. And then when I teach my students, I, you know, I, I teach them about the definition of wild foods is a plant that has one or more parts that can be used if gathered at the appropriate stage of growth and properly prepared. Those are three key bits of information that those books just didn't fulfill. That, that information wasn't there. And I tell my students now, if you don't have, if you don't know each of those things about a particular plant, you don't know enough to even try it. You know, what part on that plant? You know, if you're, if you're um, eating a plant that has poisonous stems and edible berries, or poisonous leaves and edible berries, and you just decide, well, if it's an edible plant, I can just make tea out of the leaves. No, you know, you've got to know enough about those plants in order to use the whole thing. So, yeah. um, so in any event, uh, it was just, you know, school of hard knocks for a long time, muddling through, trying different things. Uh, I got every wild food book and survival manual I could find in those days and, and just used them like an encyclopedia. You know, I would just look up every plant, a single plant in every one of those and see whatever they said. And then I would experiment with the plant. And then uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I decided to take a vagabonding trip through Europe back in the days when you could still hitchhike everywhere. I don't know. Now you probably can't. Like here, nobody hitchhikes anymore. I think you'd be waiting a long, a longer time than you used to. Yeah. So in any event... I vagabonded around, uh, you know, England, France, Italy, uh, um, Greece. And um, while I was there, one of my goals was to learn about wild foods. And so as a hitchhiker, people were very friendly. They'd pick you up and then, you know, they'd go, well, where are you going? And I'd say, where are you going? And so then I would just ride with them into their small village somewhere in the middle of nowhere 
And then we have by that time have made friends because, you know, Americans in those days were not the ugly Americans they are today. You know, people actually wanted to be with Americans. And so uh, they would invite me over for dinner, then they invite me to stay over. And so, you know, I'd be there in almost every third trip in a car, somebody would have me over for dinner and overnight. And while I was with them, particularly in France, you know, they'd have these seven course meals. It was a normal day. And I'm like eating seven courses of dinner. And, and so I'd ask the food preparer, uh, do you eat any wild foods? And, you know, we're talking 1975 here. In those days, they always said yes. And I'd say, well, can you show me tomorrow what you gather and eat from here? And so they would show me all the plants that they gathered, how to identify them, what parts that they ate on them. You know, the next person that I got picked up by and you did the same thing with, I'd ask them and they'd show me. And by the end of the trip, I was getting all my vegetables from wild foods. And so, but I was still, you know, getting baguettes and sausages and, you know, I was a big milk drinker, which everybody thought I was a baby because no one drinks milk in Europe, me. Um, but in any event, uh, by the time I got back, you know, I was in uh, graduate school at the time, at, right after that. And um, the um, dean of the Department of Parks and Recreation said, um, you should teach a class on wild foods. And I said, uh, I don't know anything. And he goes, I know about your trip. And he goes, you know more than anybody else in this university. And he goes, that makes you an expert. And so he goes, I want you to teach, you know, start preparing. And I, I, I spent a couple of years doing real concentrated work with the idea now that I was going to teach other people about this. And so getting into the ethnographic literature and the scientific literature and uh, uh, learning about setting up classes and doing tests and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, for, I think, five or six years, I was teaching at the university level. And I was still in a, uh, well, uh, I was working on my master's program in the beginning and then my Ph.D. after that. Uh, but, yeah, I was teaching classes as a student there. And I had, you know, 70 people per class and I had, you know, lectures and lab where we would take go out and identify all the plants and stuff like that. And uh, as soon as I finished my Ph.D. and I, the reason I got the Ph.D. in nutrition was to advance the field of wild foods. Mm. You know, people make up stuff all the time in the wild food literature about nutrition. So, you know, I wanted to sort of legitimize that part of the field. And uh, so then when I finished my Ph.D., I said, hey. I'm free. I'm not married. I can go move anywhere I want and I can just start a career doing nothing but this. So I moved to Portland, Oregon. Um, Was there some really important things that influenced that decision to move to uh, Portland, Oregon with, with regard to adventure, um, mountains, snow capped yeah. mountains within an hour's drive of all the big cities? Um, the ocean was within an hour's drive of all the big cities, the Columbia River Gorge. I mean, this place is just amazing. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I, I had several places. I was thinking San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, but Portland just had everything. And it wasn't too big. You know, Seattle and San Francisco were just overrun with humans. And this place was still growing. I mean, we're getting there now, but, you know. Um, but it had just the right size because I needed enough people to supply a population of students to make 
my classes viable. Uh, too small of a community and you don't have enough students. So, um, yeah, so I chose to move here, felt at home right away. And within, um, I think, three years of moving here, I did Wild Foods part-time while I had other jobs. I think about three years after moving here, I was doing Wild Foods full-time. So that's all I do, research and education. I'm not a nonprofit, so I don't have grants or anything like that. Um, you have to be a nonprofit in order to get grants. And so... Uh, Is there a reason you haven't gone down that route, the nonprofit thing? No, because I wanted to own it. You know, when you become a nonprofit, your your business or educational institution becomes a public institution. And then there's a board of directors and then you lose control. And so the only way that I could keep doing exactly what I want to do yeah. is to make it a business yeah. and an educational business, which is really hard to do. It's, you know, I'm not a wealthy man by any means. I was thinking of self-publishing uh, my the book series that I have in mind. And um, and then uh, I was teaching at a outdoor skills event, which I do on occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this fellow comes up to me and he says, uh, you should write a book. You seem to know more than anybody else on this. And uh, and I said, yeah, I think I am. I'm, I want to self-publish at some point. He goes, why do you want to self-publish? I said, because no one will let me do what I want to do. You know, like most of the publishers want that formula where you're just doing the, a catalog kind of a book. And uh, he goes, I, I'll let you do whatever you want. Well, this guy didn't look very, you know, he looked pretty disheveled. And I, you know, thought he's working out of his garage. And I thought, well, I could do just as good as that. And uh, he kept calling me every year for about three or four years. And um, finally, he sent me a catalog, which was about that thick of all the books that his company publishes. And I thought, well, this guy knows what he's doing. And since he he would let me do whatever I wanted, that's, you know, why the first book looks like it does, because that was the design that I wanted. That was the approach that I wanted. I wanted to spend lots of time on each plant, do a chapter per plant lots of photographs, clear descriptions of everything, close-ups of edibles at their prime, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and so right now I'm working on volumes two and three um, of the book series. But um, yeah, it's the way I wanted it to be. And I feel like probably you, you along with Samuel Thayer have probably set the benchmark for how to write books about wild plants for the, for the future. Um, yeah, we've got a different style. Uh, he... Uh, um, I think is writing more for the advanced forager, like yep. somebody who already knows stuff. Mm. And I'm working from the standpoint of you could be a beginner or an advanced forager. I'm I'm writing this book so that you know everything from A to Z. Yeah. You know, that's my approach. I'm, you know, I know there's going to be advanced people, but everybody who's been an advanced forager who's bought the book has liked it anyway. So it's not, you know, like they're missing out. And I do have features in there that nobody else has, like the nutrition charts and stuff. That's oh, exactly. You're not going to find that anywhere else. So, um, yeah. So, so, so we do have a different approach uh, in, in that yeah. regard. But he's he's great. I mean, he's he's a fantastic uh, educator and forager. Yeah, I mean, I think what you both do is is to go into a great deal of depth 
on not so many species. So you, you're 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 doing it to to get the beginner to get off to a good start and 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 have that confidence because you you, you break it down from the basic identification. And I think you spend a lot more time on the identification. Whereas Samuel's going really in depth in in the overall experience of that plant and everything you can do to process it, mm-hmm. things like that. But I guess my book is is different in that. I tried to get as close to covering um, all of the different plants in the British Isles. And I think uh, a friend of mine, Robin Harford, has, has since then generated a list which is roughly twice as many plants as in my book, oh, exactly. which, which were going to be really thorough. But I was, I was trying to be as thorough as I could without giving a sketchy approach. And, and I have to say, I was, I, was, I was influenced by what you and Sammy were saying, in that I didn't write about any plant that I hadn't actually uh, mm. encountered and eaten. All except one. I ended up with with a plant called mountain sorrel in my book, which to oh. this day I still have not found. I worked really hard to find it. I put the feelers out for lots of people to try and send me some that that that, that had it near them. But I thought, well, it's okay because mountain sorrel is, in culinary terms, so close to uh, to, to the other ones that that it, it wasn't a crime. But I I after reading your stuff, I just thought I am simply not going to write about anything unless I've mm-hmm. actually eaten it. And I did my best to get it, to cook with it, and also to get chefs to experiment with it so I could get the, the, the take on it from, from chefs. Um, but your, your primary business is supplying restaurants, is, is it not? Or do I understand that correctly? It has been up to now. But I'm, I'm now, I'm now um, I mean, it's, it's quite a nice way to say this. It's just in conversation with you. But um, at the moment, I'm... Um, I'm Kind of edging away from from the, the 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 focus on that because what I feel we've done is we've we have accomplished something and not just us but like we've been part of a process whereby um, you know the chefing world has has become aware of all of these many plants and seaweeds and so on up to the point where they can see the fact that you can eat them and there's a certain amount of work being done on on how to use them so that's kind of job done in a way me and all the other people that have been doing that kind of work. Um, but where my kind of interest lies, and I guess my motivation lies now, is to try and work on on taking that a bit deeper, you know, like wh- what is this plant in relation to its ecology? What is eating this plant in relation to the global food system or to human health in terms of nutrition and things like that? Or in terms of our relationship to our ancestors, you know, where we used to be with a much more synergistic relationship to the planet. I do generally um, that the chefs are not particularly interested in continuing with us on that journey. They they, they, they they basically are happy to have the supply of the plant and don't want to take it any deeper, which I have to say, I think it is, um, is something that will probably change. I imagine that in a few years' time, everyone's going to be engaging with these issues and, and, and restaurants will see the opportunity that they have, which I think they're missing at the moment, which is to take the dining experience to a whole other level of depth by mm-hmm. communicating to their guests, you know, and, and by making their business model something that is about far more about sustainability, which at the moment people think that, that in terms of waste management and so on. But I think if, if a restaurant saw that its potential role was to dramatically alter the relationship that the people that eat there have totally, you know, human health, their body, the landscape, reverence for traditional cultures in order to bring those old ways back all of those kind of deep things but i think the restaurants do at the moment they've got okay well we've got enough to work on you've given us challenging ingredients and we're trying to get them into the thing so you know 
I find that just I don't get the engagement from those guys that but I am getting from from people who are starting from the interest uh, in nutrition. They're starting from the interest with having a relationship to the land or being more sustainable. So the long, tall and short of it is I'm, I'm moving now more into into education and and specifically into trying to do things which are about community development or bringing healing to people. Um, with, with, with in initial discussions with some people around um, bringing wild food experiences to people suffering from mental health difficulties, uh, mm. who are homeless, uh, and kids and things like that. So, so yeah, that's that's more uh, where I'm going. And we've set up a community interest company called the World Wild uh, Community Interest Company, and that's the, the objective of that basically is to is to see all the benefits that come when people connect with land through. Uh, through gathering and eating wild plants. But I mean, it's just great to talk to you, John, and be aware of uh, what's going on in other parts of the world to uh, to achieve this same ob- objective, basically. I mean, uh, I think the fact that we can talk to each other on Skype and, you know, I mean, you gave the example of the Asian restaurants opening the door to uh, the use of seaweeds there. And I think I think that's an example of what we've got. You know, I'm, I've got quite a protracted critique of technology if we were to get into it. But I'm also very aware of the benefits of, of this kind, you know, that, that people can share knowledge about essentially the same stuff that's being tinkered with in completely different parts of the world. And that together we can uh, we can really, you know, have a have a much better experience of um, eating wild stuff by comparing notes in this way. Yeah. But, you know, what's interesting here is, I mean, think of the potential that Mexican restaurants, you don't eat seaweeds in Mexican restaurants, Italian restaurants. You don't eat seaweeds in Italian restaurants, at least not in this country. And so um, really the only cuisine that you get seaweeds in here are Asian cuisine. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, American cuisine, not, no, no seaweeds, no sea vegetables. So the potential is there. The question is, again, you know, uh, acceptance by a, a general public. That's the other thing. You know, sort of like uh, people are are habitual. They like what they like. They don't want to try new things. I remember I made this huge, beautiful, wild salad for my family for a Thanksgiving dinner. And my mom said, we're not eating that. He goes, we're not eating that. And and I go, why are we not eating that? Because he goes, it's not a Thanksgiving food. And so, you know, it was sort of like, it, it, it there is an inertia that people have about what they're already doing that makes venturing into this new stuff very difficult. So most of my students are adventurers. Yeah, you know, they're they're they want to learn new things. They want to try new things. Uh, they're open to new things, new flavors. You know, uh, new knowledge, things like that. Uh, but a lot of people just don't care. I went on a hike uh, two days ago with a whole bunch of social friends. They know what I do for a living. And so I gathered some fairy bell berries, uh, which are perfectly edible. And I, I took them and we stopped and people were having uh, some wine and, you know, uh, a couple of other snacks. And I go, yeah, I gathered some berries. Who wants to try these? Out of 12 people, two would even try the berries and they were delicious and they loved them. The people that tried it, but the others were just sort of like, ah, you know, it's not in my domain. It's not what I do. 
you know, I'm already drinking my wine and, you know, eating my grapes. And why would I want to eat any, you know, anything I don't know already? I, I don't encounter that, that kind of conservatism. I don't, I don't know why that is. Perhaps, um, yeah, I don't know what that says about my um, context, but yeah, that's... that's and yeah, it yeah. could say a lot about that particular group of friends. I don't know, but, you know, um, yeah, so... If people aren't there specifically for wild foods, because if I'm in classes, people are happy to sample stuff. If I'm teaching students that paid me to take the class, they're going to sample things. But if I just go with a bunch of people that have no connection to wild foods, you know, no necessary interest in it, they're not going to try it. So that's just the way things are. Now, if they were served in a restaurant, that's a different story because there's a sort of a ceremony about going into a restaurant and you're being given this glorious plate that looks great and it's got all this food on it and you don't really care. I mean, people, you people garnish things with flowers they've never seen before. They're happy to eat that because, you know, it's on the plate that the chef gave you. But, you know, yeah. in normal everyday life, it's not that you're not there to eat and be treated by the chef. The chef is doing all the work. The chef is setting everything up for you. The chef is the person you're there for. And so you're more likely to do it. Oh, John, well, it's super cool to have you. Great talking to you. I'm so happy we have this Skype thing that we can communicate like this rather than emails or even the phone. It's so much nicer this way. Take care. So thanks for joining us again on this week's World Wild podcast. And uh, just to say, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we're currently looking at building a website for uh, the whole worldwide project which is going to create a, a much more um, sort of appropriate link to, to the podcast than the the current forager website does which is kind of linked to our restaurant supply business but for now you can you can certainly email us at hello um, at forager.org.uk which is our main contact email for forager um, and just just let us know you know where you are in the world and uh, what the podcast means to you and and um if you've got any uh feedback or comments we'd we'd love to hear that so do be in touch and uh let us know what 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 your experience is with this stuff that we're putting out every week okay that's it for this week's worldwide podcast mm-hmm.